This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury and welcome to Matt's Blamed this morning. Now, last week, we pretty much figured out uh, that the metaverse is really just the internet of the future. And it's funny how Matt Armitage can make even the most exciting tech developments um, sound a little bit boring. Hey, Rich, um, I kind of take issue with that. I mean, you haven't even finished the intro and you're already, you know, <laughs> abusing me. Um, if, if I wanted insults, I'd just spend the time with King Jaff. Um, he's, he's never happy, but at least he's cute and he's covered in fur. And you only tip one of those boxes. Um, you know, so, um, no, I wouldn't say boring. You know, I just wanted to demystify it a bit. You know, that's pretty much the entire premise of these shows. Take mm. the ineffability out of the equation and mm. look at what the technology actually means. So we're going to continue with that metaverse theme today. As I mentioned last week, you know, we'd look at the business of the metaverse as well as some of the projects that the big players are building mm -hmm. and look at some of the national and supranational developments that may shape the met metaverse. So of course, you know, there, there's also that tricky issue of where uh, Web3, where blockchain technology comes into this equation. But I think we'll tackle that one in a separate episode because, you know, in some ways that's metaverse adjacent or mm. uh, metaverse integratum to mangle my non-existent Latin. Oh, look at you. Uh, now um... I just made that up. Completely. Yeah, I, I thought you might do. Yeah. Do you want to uh, give us a, a a quick Twitter update before that? Um, you know, yeah. I mean, we've, we've not had it yet so far in the show. No. And normally by now you'd have mentioned it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure how the job of being associate twerp um, kind of landed <laughs> on my shoulders. Um, but sure. Um, so uh, the Blue Tick program is on pause. Um, the Twitter coders were asked to fly to San Francisco to help Musk and also mm -hmm. to present their code to him. Um, Nine Inch Nails' Trent Reznor has stated that uh, he's leaving Twitter for the sake of his mental health. Um, Musk labelled him a crybaby. I really don't see uh, a good end to a, a feud with Trent Reznor. Um, There's going to be some good music come out of it, though, I sure. Well, exactly, yeah. And yeah. it's going to be around for a, possibly longer than Twitter, but, you know, yeah. we'll we'll wait and see. <laughs> um, Musk also tweeted that he had fired an employee. This is a guy that he had a public back and forth with over some of the platform's bugs. I think the engineer called Musk out um, and ended up being fired. Um, he's reportedly fired other engineers who had been critical of him um, on company communication platforms. Um, interestingly, other companies, including some quite big tech players like HubSpot, are actively targeting these laid-off Twitter engineers and coders. Smart. Now, yeah, exactly. I mean, it might fly in the face of logic a bit because we're seeing sort of these massive layoffs across the tech sector. But it actually underplays the fact that there's a skills shortage in a lot of those coding and engineering roles. Mm. You know, it's people like me that tech companies uh, can live without. So, mm. um, yes, you know, those companies are actively talking about 
the uh, the kind of toxic environment that Musk seems to have created uh, in order to uh, lure workers to their seemingly karma ships, although we do know that not all of those companies are, are quite as uh, white as they're painted. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, the real big Twitter news is that uh, Musk has allowed Donald Trump back on the platform. Um, mm-hmm. This happened after a public poll. Um, now, Musk, for some reason, seems to think that everybody who uses Twitter follows his account um, because, you know, ego. Um, But uh, Trump, of course, can't or won't tweet because of his relationship with Truth Social. So Musk then created a weird meme of someone about to hit somebody else's bottom in a provocative manner uh, and with said bottom covered in a Twitter logo. So I'm, I'm kind of assuming that the message from that is that Trump should take up the tease and start to tweet. Um, you know, um, now at the same time that he allowed Trump back on, he also announced that uh, InfoWars host and conspiracy theorist Alex Jones won't be allowed back on Twitter. Uh, now, the reasoning for that is because he doesn't want to give a platform to someone who he says makes benefit uh, or makes gain from the death of children. Um, You know, not a big fan of Alex Jones, but there doesn't seem to be an equally applied logic here. Uh, You have one person who allegedly fomented an insurrection to overturn democracy, but fine, we'll have you back on our platform. Uh, Someone who promotes conspiracies to sell health supplements, well, that's completely beyond the pale and not cool. So I understand the the sentiment, the sentiment, but it doesn't suggest a, a logical approach to policing content on the platform. Mm-hmm. And amazingly, that's just one week. Um, he'll probably uh, abuse someone or something on Twitter in the twelve hours from now until broadcast. But you know, it's on Twitter, so I don't care. Uh, should we go back to the metaverse? Yeah, let's do that. Um, but before we do, I did hear a rumor that that poll he put up for getting Trump back on uh, Twitter as well was also a bit of a bot trap. Uh, yes. Um, mm. And he, he came out and said that he will try and uh, resolve that uh, that issue. But, um, you know, the, the presence of bots was one of the reasons he gave for not wanting to buy Twitter. So, right. you know, again, it's you go round and round with this and you always come back to go figure. Right. Anyway, let's get on to the metaverse then. Uh, and we did finish uh, last week with a, with a bit of a rush parade through the navigation tools for this uh, new uh, metaverse-filled uh, internet. Yeah, so this is really the the virtual reality paradox. So apologies if you didn't or, or haven't heard last week's episode. Uh, the basis of last week was that I didn't want to talk about the actual appearance of the metaverse um, and tools like VR that might be used to navigate it because I wanted to uncouple the meaning of the metaverse from those tools, uh, which I'm assuming is the reason that Richard is accusing me of making the metaverse boring. (laughs) Um, You know, people often talk about the metaverse and virtual reality pretty much interchangeably. Mm. So I think one of the first things to tackle is how widespread that use of VR is. Mm -hmm. Um, Trying to find consistent stats for this was a little bit of a, a challenge. In the end, I went with a, a report on a careers website called uh, Zipia, which mostly cited stats sourced from Statista. So supposedly there are around 170 million active 
VR users around the world, and about a third of those are concentrated in the US. Um, now, this is kind of the stat that I had trouble with because it draws the conclusion that 15% of the US population uses virtual reality. Um, that means more than one in 10 Americans theoretically use VR. And I can't really see that statistic. No. If no, if uh, any of our US listeners want to chime in and, and let me know if one in every seven people they know has a VR headset, please do. Although um, the Kardashians seem somewhat, you know, virtual. Uh, well, you, you'd know more about that than me. Yeah, yeah, I would. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, sorry. I've, I've got no. I've got a feeling that this is a, a typical early adopter model where there's a passionate and small group of users who buys the latest version of everything as it comes out. Um, if this is based on actual use of VR environments rather than retail sales of VR headsets, then you know I'm happy to stand corrected. Um, does that figure include augmented reality use? No, that is separate. So um, AR users in the US at least uh, are almost double virtual reality users. And that's something that you'd expect because there's mm. a lower technological barrier to entry. Uh, to access VR, you need a virtual reality headset. And right, depending yeah. on your immersion preference, gloves, suits, special chairs, or mm -mm. treadmills and all kinds of paraphernalia. By and large, you can use AR, augmented reality, just with the smartphone in your pocket. Yeah. Um, but again, despite the ease of use of AR, there's that's still a relatively low number, especially as it's actually calculated on the basis of one use per month. So again, I'm wondering how those stats are arrived at. Um, does that include the use of, say, um, live translation in Google Translate? You know, does that count as uh, AR for their mm -hmm. for for the way they calculate? So we're a long way from mass adoption of this technology. But the converse of this is that a lot of games call themselves metaverses. So why do we have that juxtaposition? Mm -hmm. As I said before, you can think of the metaverse as the internet. And the idea of the internet is based on, you know, ubiquity and accessibility. Games developers want to maximize their profits, so they want their games to be as accessible as possible. And they don't want a high barrier to entry in terms of physical hardware that you have to use to actually get into that game environment because they make money by, you know, selling you items and assets and add-ons in-game. Mm. They can't do that if you've already taken out a mortgage to pay for, you know, some massive virtual reality rig. I mean, you, you, you could have just said it, you know, VR is a part of the metaverse and, and not the metaverse itself. Okay, well, if you want to do this, you can. Um, I think I'll let you do the uh, the Twitter update next <laughs> no, week. No, that's no, all yours. No, no. exactly. <laughs> no, I mean that that is a, a fair summary, um, and you know we we have to take him uh, into account as well that that virtual reality user base is increasing. I think the stat I saw was projections for the market to be worth uh, about twenty seven billion dollars by. Um, 2027. Mm. And we've seen some important trends over the past few years. I think uh, Sony was traditionally the leader in the virtual reality headset space. Uh, Oculus was the close rival. Now, since the pandemic, sort of plus or minus a bit, probably 2019, Oculus seems to have overtaken Sony in sales. Now, I said 
say seems because I haven't seen stats for this year, but up until I think 2021, Oculus was the leader. Uh, I'm not going to debate why. I'm not going to go into the relative merits of uh, different headsets because boring. Um, you know, there's a, a ton of uh, Google reviews that you can check for that. The important part here is, you know, it's meta. Oculus is part of Mark Zuckerberg's meta empire. And mm -hmm. the company's virtual playground, Horizon Worlds, sits under that Oculus platform. And in fact, at the moment, it's only accessible if you use an Oculus headset. Now, why does this matter? Well, meta is betting big on the metaverse, and virtual reality is an enormous part of Mark Zuckerberg's vision. Does that mean you could only use meta hardware to access meta world? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the current reality. Although, you know, we still come back to that point about accessibility. Um, mm. Facebook and WhatsApp are ubiquitous because they're accessible. Yes, they're also ubiquitous because they're popular, mm -hmm. but accessibility is also a big reason for their popularity. Mm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm guessing here, but I imagine the primary reason that you can only use a, a meta-made headset to access, uh, you know, meta's worlds has more to do with compatibility to, to do with kind of hardware. Mm -hmm. as, those two, uh, as those environments develop, as we see sort of more common standards, I would foresee meta opening it uh, opening it up to hardware, to headsets from other manufacturers right. because it doesn't make sense for them not mm -hmm, to. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the Meta and Facebook business model isn't hardware derived. It derives right. from in-world use. It derives from data. It derives from buying and selling services. So all the things we currently buy online and offline, it's important for those to be available in one form or another within these virtual worlds. All right, well, let's come back to the kind of uh, business case after the break. But as we're talking about uh, meta and, and user experience, is there any data on how people have responded to uh, meta's virtual worlds? Well, some internal documents that leaked from meta to the Wall Street Journal last month um, made for some quite bleak reading. Uh, it suggested that most users quit the platform after just one month. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not using virtual reality anymore, just that they aren't finding what they want in Facebook's vision of virtual reality. Right. Uh, the model for Horizon World isn't a model where, you know, Meta creates everything. It's an umbrella. It's effectively a software platform for third parties to build in and to build on. Mm -hmm. So it relies on the virtual equivalent of Facebook groups to attract people. Right. Now, those same documents indicated that only 9% of the created worlds ever achieve even 50 users. You know, that, not a high bar. And that's kind of the big problem with a lot of these big sprawling virtual landscapes. Um, where are all the people to interact with, especially when they first launch? Mm -hmm. So if you go in and you find an empty universe, the question is, are you going to come back? So mm. it becomes another one of those feedback loops. You don't go because it's empty. And because it's perceived to be empty, no one goes. So that's why I stress those issues of accessibility. The more barriers you erect, the more friction you create for that user journey and the fewer people who eventually use it. But it isn't always a numbers game. 
No, I mean, that's kind of the the Twitter argument. You know, Twitter isn't important because of the number of its users, but who those users are. And there are plenty of uh, digital businesses that operate by catering to a niche. But Mm. that isn't Meta's model. Meta is mass. It monetizes data. And Mm. it's spent tens of billions of dollars on this Metaverse place. So it needs, you know, that that, that mass of adoption as well. And, you know, it also comes back to the questions around the user experience. Why are people going to your virtual environment? What are they going there to find? Are they going Mm -hmm. for entertainment? Are they going to hang out and fly around? Or are they going there to to work? So after the break, I'll talk a a little bit more about the use case for VR in the metaverse. And uh, maybe we'll get to look at some of the more geopolitical issues. Hang on a minute. I'm supposed to do that bit. I know, what? but it's power. I'll let you have it. Yeah, we'll be back. Right, Matt? Yes, BFM 89.9. Boring, fake, macho. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Um, uh, Matt, can I just introduce this bit? Is that okay? You've got nothing but silence from me. All right. Uh, We're back in the really doesn't matterverse today. (laughs) Uh, Before the break, we were talking about the experiences of using the VR version of the uh, metaverse. Yes, sorry for that pun. Um, So there was uh, an interesting piece in uh, New Scientist about a German study into the productivity of workers using VR. Um, What's the, sorry, just just to interrupt, I bet it's got a wonderful title. Do you know the name of the the article? I didn't look it up, but it's probably um, an interesting piece about a German study. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? Um, Now, they highlighted a a lot of the positive aspects. For example, the information access. You know, in virtual reality, you can have multiple screens and you just move your head from one to another. So the ability to access and arrange information is improved without requiring huge amounts of space and hardware. Um, When you're working remotely, you know, you can join others in a virtual office. So you still have that feeling of working side by side. Um, And, you know, I understand what they're getting at there. They're they're maintaining those uh, team dynamics, though there is a part of me says that if you've managed to break free from cubicle culture, why would you want to recreate it virtually? Um, But uh, that's, I guess, just me. Uh, Mm. The study was uh, conducted by Coburg University. Uh, Ten participants were monitored for um, two five-day working weeks. So during one of the working weeks, they wore a VR headset for the entire week. Mm. Um, They did use a specific name brand, but that's not the point. Uh, And the second week where they worked traditionally. So overall, the workers were 16% less productive when they were using VR. Um, But more importantly, I think they reported higher levels of stress and anxiety. And they also found the physical constraints of the headsets more limiting than 
working in a traditional fashion. Uh, they also found there was a lot more eye strain after working extended uh, periods in VR, you know, compared to using traditional monitors and office setups where your eyes can focus and refocus naturally in response to um, true three dimensions rather than these simulated 3D environments. So if the future of the metaverse isn't VR, um, what's it going to be? Well, it, it's not that VR won't be part of the metaverse. It's more that people equate the metaverse with this idea of VR and to a lesser extent augmented reality. That's mm. why I keep saying it's easier to say internet because it shapes people's expectations better. Uh, some people are also calling this uh, extended reality or XR because, you know, we need another term. I'm just going to um, say it's going to, we don't need another term. Yeah, we don't. exactly. So if, if you want a sort of a, a bigger umbrella, um, think of it in terms of maybe the immersive internet uh, and go back to those points I mentioned earlier, you know, accessibility and ubiquity, because that's what you need for widespread adoption. And mm. that's the basis of our current internet. Uh, you know, the evolution or the adaptation, however you want to frame this kind of future experience, will be these immersive layers providing richer online experiences. I sound like a management handbook. You and, do, yeah. Um, yeah. Sigma um, six or something. Yeah. <laughs> and most of it you won't even notice because most of these changes will be gradual and iterative. Uh, that's why I like using the example of, you know, a GeoCities website mm. because you didn't really notice that your favorite sites had stopped looking like Dayglow Vomit until you actually go back and look at the cached versions of them because it happens you know, gradually it's a tweak here, yeah. a tweak there, a new font, a new logo, new page colors, you know, maybe a, a, a tweaked UI or layout. So the evolution to the metaverse is essentially in these iterative, emerging and immersive layers. Yeah, I mean, we're already seeing this immersive layer. Uh, again, going back to the example of games that call themselves metaverses, mm. you know, they may not be VR or AR, but they're are tools that allow you to buy and sell uh, games assets and items or even to create your own items. They have inbuilt messaging and chat systems so that within those open world platforms, there are already these experience layers that are being, you know, continuously added to as both the worlds and the technology evolves. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what we're going to see as the metaverse evolves, being able to shift through these experience layers more and more seamlessly. Yeah. Uh, I've used this example before, and it's still mostly fanciful. It's not really built on what's technologically possible right now. But it's the idea that you can go from having a voice call with a friend to appearing to sit next to them in the audience of a virtual concert, mm. you know, just by pressing a button. Each new layer adds an immersive quality. You know, you can go from voice to AR to VR to even perhaps the dreaded holograms that we're never going to have. <laughs> um, that's a, a callback to a theme from last week, in case you didn't hear that show. Um, and, you know, this is without even talking about the AI component of the metaverse, which is going to be absolutely enormous. I mean, I mean well, that's fair, but some people are still going to want to know about the money, Matt. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it is just the internet. The internet is already a license 
to print money and to lose money, depending on, you know, where you sit in the food chain. At the moment, as Mark Zuckerberg has found out, a lot of metaverse investment um, at this stage is highly speculative. Uh, There's an interesting CNBC piece I came across, which uh, quotes a recent Deloitte report on the impact of the metaverse on Asian economies. Now, this predicts that uh, the metaverse could be worth uh, $1.4 trillion a year to Asian economies by 2035. And it puts forward a number of interesting possibilities uh, that explain why this region could be amongst the first to benefit. Mm. Partly because the region is also a hub for the production side of the metaverse, you know, the semiconductors, the electronics. So those gains aren't all in-world or service-oriented. They're also in manufacturing. They're in building the servers that house the metaverse and the devices that will allow us to interact with it. Uh, It's also coupled with the relatively high familiarity of uh, consumers in Asia, the high uptake of mobile gaming. So people are familiar with open world and games platforms, use Mm -hmm. of blockchain, crypto, NFTs, all of these aspects. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the figure Deloitte uses is that there are 1.3 billion mobile gamers across Asia. So not only is the region likely to be a key driver when it comes to the use of the metaverse, that size of the market share will also play a key role in shaping what the metaverse becomes. Right. Um, Again, I've seen some figures that suggest uh, around $120 billion have been invested in metaverse projects this year. Now, again, it's hard to make comparative judgments relating to those investments because everyone has a different definition of what constitutes a metaverse. Mm. So when you look at figures like that, Somebody else will say it's a much smaller or a much larger figure because their definition of the metaverse differs. So we come back to one of the central pushbacks against the metaverse. And beyond that, will it be any good? And will anyone actually want to use it? Well, I think that's one of the bigger issues surrounding the VR model of the the metaverse. And I think that's the biggest issue that meta faces. Um, But that doesn't mean that there aren't compelling virtual reality apps and games out there, there are. It just means that Meta hasn't cracked it. Mm. And I touched on this last week, uh, Epic's Unreal Engine. It's creating these amazing immersive games. It's being used to create these equally futuristic but real-seeming environments for TV and film. And deploying that kind of technology as your backdrop to the metaverse, even without VR or AR, that's an incredibly detailed experience. Yeah. Of course, if you can solve the issue of how much computing power that takes to be generated in real time. And I think, you know, there's this kind of tendency when people think about the things they're going to buy in the metaverse to default to, you know, Minecraft-style Minecraft blocky items, right? Yeah. So again, I mean, that's why I think we should think about this as the internet rather than the metaverse. You know, think of all the things that we already buy online. That's not going to change. The experience of buying those things will change as those layers become more immersive. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we're seeing um, in-world design, I think, starting to shape real-world design already. You know, for example, there are uh, digital fashion houses and designers. Now, online, of course, 
digitally, they deal with a different set of physics and conditions than they would in the real world Mm -hmm. so that you can achieve uh, shapes or behaviors with clothing that simply can't happen in the real world. You know, something like flapping gossamer butterfly wings. I know that's the cliche that everyone goes to. But it also Um, sounds like something Balenciaga would try to do. Well, precisely. Um, uh, or equally Balenciaga, clothes that, that float above and around your body without making contact with your skin. Mm-hmm. Um, now, all of those things are great for a digital avatar, but can you do any more than that? Well, mm. a lot of brands are, are banking that you will be able to. I mean, brands like Nike and Adidas are creating methods where fans can create their own lines for the brands, and they can even share in the royalties if those digital products sell. And potentially, uh, some of them can even be turned into real-world products. So, you know, lines of kicks that you can buy and wear in the real world. Uh, With these digital fashion houses, um, for example, some of them offer services where you can have yourself photoshopped into that design. Um, That piece can be turned into uh, an NFT. And it doesn't so much matter that it's digital because we live life through a lens now. It doesn't Mm. matter that you've never worn it, only that you appear to because you can post that picture of you wearing it. Mm -hmm. That's not really any different from from the reality. Mm. Um, Some Designers are taking it a stage further. Uh, They're prototyping incredible um, gravity or even material science uh, defying couture, you know, trying to figure out how to bring those digital designs into the real world. Uh, Designers like uh, London-based Scarlett Yang have been experimenting with materials like algae to make the clothing they create uh, or to make kind of replicants of the clothing they create digitally. Uh, Some of those garments end up being short-lived and ephemeral. Um, You know, the algae dissolves in water, for example. But in some ways, that's the point. The way we think about digital objects is different from the way we think about physical objects. Mm -hmm. But as the metaverse and the real world uh, sort of come closer together, as as the metaverse becomes more tangible, Mm. uh, these worlds are going to start converging and our thinking about them is going to start converging as well. So one final area we, we, I suppose we, we need to explore, and probably very quickly, um, is the borders of the metaverse. Uh, when you talk about the metaverse as the internet, we already have a fractured internet. Yeah, so it really is probably best to do this quickly because you can either do it at the surface level or you can spend you know, the next few hours, hours. Or days talking yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, surface level always works for me. Um, <laughs> this is where we also have a, an overlap with Web3. So the basis of the Web3 technologies is uh, autonomy and decentralization. Mm-hmm. Now, those two concepts obviously don't work very well for autocratic countries. Um, often, oddly, they're, uh, they work okay in the financial space where uh, seeming anonymity, uh, anonymity is often uh, sought uh, for moving money and assets around. But the metaverse is a social space um, as much or even more than it is a commercial one. And that makes it tricky for it to be decentralized. Uh, we touched on interoperability in the last uh, in the last episode. And I think uh, a lot of metaverse platforms or umbrellas will, will be... Uh, 
inoperable or ininteroperable. I'm not sure what that word is, but they will not be compatible by design because right. the underlying value principles will be different. And mm-hmm. that's something that you already see in the internet that we have now. Uh, you know, when you go online, depending on what country you're in, your username might be registered to a government ID or your financial transactions might be logged with a central bank mm-hmm. or you might have a much greater degree of anonymity when you go online. Mm-hmm. Um, does the government or other third parties have free access to your user data or do they have to go through a court system to, to get that, that data? From the user experience perspective, both of those versions of the internet look the same. You have comparable apps and experiences, the levels of immersion are there, but the uh, the systems that they're built on have very different principles and aims because they perceive the user in a different way. Um, We're already seeing more countries trying to install their own kill switches on the internet. So I think my fear would be that a, a, a less decentralized metaverse would make it easier to fragment and splinter the internet even further and to introduce these isolation and kill switches in the name of a supposedly better internet experience. Interesting stuff. Uh, Thank you again for that, Matt. My pleasure as ever. Um, Do you want to talk us out of the show? No, I don't. I'm going to let you do that. I'll just say to people that uh, they can come and find me on my Substack or on my website, culturepop.com. And if you missed any part of this podcast, um, hosted by BFM, I do believe, you can find out wherever you normally uh, listen to it from. I recommend using the BFM app. It's available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. My name is Rich Bradbury, hosting for Matt here on Matt Splained on uh, BFM 89.9, the business station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.